baseball, the nation's pastime. For well over a century, the sport has nestled itself in the romantic nook of America's soul. Its greatness captured in sentimental movies like The Natural and Field of Dreams. But light is balanced with darkness, and for all its majesty, this sport bears scandals and self-inflicted wounds. The 1919 Black Sox, a racial barrier. And of course, there's that gray space between light and dark where tragic comedy lies. The 1888 poem, Casey at Bat, Yogi Berra's relationship with paradox and irony, the Red Sox in the 20th century. Like any phenomenon, the game has a full life that cannot be reduced to just one idea, one moment, one game. To do so would be the height of chutzpah and ego. So, let your podcaster oblige. The greatest game ever played was on February 2nd, 1946. Known as the Baseball Bugs game, it took place in New York City's famed polo grounds, where the teetotalers hosted the Gas House Gorillas. The aged totalers, one could even go so far as calling them elderly, were no match for the unshaven, cigar-chawing players with shoulders as broad as the outfield placards. By the fourth inning, the visitors were up, 96 to nothing. So total was the farce that the home team turned to fans in the outfield for help. One such wasn't even a man or woman. It was a rabbit, Bugs Bunny. He struck out the first gorilla with fastballs. Then, well, he changed baseball history with a single off-speed pitch that struck out the side as three gorillas swung three times each before the ball reached the plate. Players ever since have attempted to recreate the throw, and though pitches such as the Fossum Flip, Super Changeup, Balloon Ball, Parachute, Gravity Curve, and the Monty Brewster have come close, nothing has been seen like that magical day in 1946. Nothing until America's Central Bank came up to bat on August 9th, 2007. For 13 years, the Fed has been hacking away at the same pitch of monetary disorder, and unlike the gas house gorillas, apparently there is no limit to the number of swings it can take at this slow-moving soap bubble. In this, the Frank Robinson episode of Making Sense, Jeff Snyder recounts just the three most recent strikes gold, dollar, and inflation expectations. As part of the discussion, we'll talk about Goldman Sachs' claim that, quote, real concerns are emerging about the dollar's reserve currency status, and note that negative yielding U.S. bonds are only a hair's hair away. Also, the euro, the yen, and other important things like Magnum P.I.'s mustache and whether Jeff likes baseball. You're going to learn about three topics today, the dollar, inflation, and sovereign bonds. And it's all to help you better understand your finances, your economy, politics, and society. My name is Emil Kalinowski. I'm your host, and this is Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production. I am joined by a man that Real Clear Markets refers to as the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. But out on the street, he's better known as the sleuth of the shadows, the man that peers into the monetary nooks and crannies to tell us how the monetary order is functioning or malfunctioning. Jeff Snyder, good morning. Good morning. I think I'm a guy who has too much time on his hands and spends way too much time reading uh, arcane economic history and literature. That's probably a better description of what I do. But that's not going to make it, uh, that's not going to sell the YouTube or the podcast show. We've got to stylize you as some sort of a cross between Sherlock Holmes and Magnum P.I. Well, then you have my sympathy because that's a very tall task. <laughs> Grow a mustache, get a Ferrari, yeah. unbutton your, uh, buttons, your shirt, a couple more buttons, and uh, wear the hat. I'll have to move to Hawaii too, so that's probably a longer term issue. Maybe you can jo- uh, join George and uh, Hugh down in St. Bart's. So yeah, there you go. shout out to them if they're watching. Jeff, we're losing viewers because nobody's interested in our banter. Let's turn to the dollar. This is probably the number one uh, question I receive on Twitter. 
And that's other than whether or not I really did apply lotion to wealthy ladies in the Cayman Islands for tips. It deals with the dollar. Number one, on July 27th, you posted at Alhambra Investments an article whose title echoes Spartacus and Eminem. Quote, would the real dollar please stand up? Was there anything specific that inspired you to, to pen this article? Yeah, DXY. Essentially, the idea that the dollar is absolutely crashing. Um, everybody has been saying for a very long time, which is important to note that they've been saying this for a very long time, that the dollar is history. It's toast. It's had its run. It's had its day, but it's, it's finally it's over. We can have the funerals now. It's going to happen. DXY broke below its supposedly multi-year trend, which means something to somebody somewhere. And therefore, you know, sorry, sorry, American citizens, but the U.S. dollar is no longer a valid currency and it's on its way to zero. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about DXY versus the dollar and everyone's opinion. But let's start with December 3rd, 2015. Now, Jeff, I remember that day because I was actually at Lambeau Field. It was a night game. Green Bay Packers were hosting the hapless Detroit Lions. It was snowing. Detroit put up a good effort in the first half. Thereafter, of course, they lost because they're the Detroit Lions. What else happened that day? Well, you know, while you were having fun going to the game in, in Green Bay, I was reading the ECB statements about what they were supposedly doing that was going to help the European and therefore the global economy get out of this funk that they, nobody could seem to explain. And, you know, the way it was told was, hey, the ECB is going to do a lot more with QE. They're going to really hammer negative interest rates. They're going to do all of these things that were told as accommodative, but yet they disappointed the markets by only doing, you know, they extended their QE a little bit further out in time, which is kind of whatever, what always happens to QE. And in terms of negative rates, they only dropped the deposit floor another 10 basis points to, I believe it was minus 30 basis points at the time. But what happened was, for, in terms of the currency, from that point onward, the euro, which had been kind of sideways to weaker from, from that uh, before then, started to rise again, which was kind of the signal or kind of the indication that you could take it, because the dollar is lower against the euro when it goes up, that this was a good thing, that maybe the ECB hadn't disappointed at least as far as the euro was concerned, maybe there was some positive stuff to take from this. And the euro started to rally for, I think that it lasted four, five, six months. Yeah, it rallied twice, actually, in 2015. Uh, okay, so it rallied, despite the fact, as you said, uh, March 2015 to February 16 were some of the worst economic, financial, monetary conditions since 2008 or actually since 2011 in Europe's case, did we see anything in either of those? Let's start with 2008. Was there anything similar with the euro rallying despite a disorder? Yeah, in late 2008, I believe it was October, late October, uh, with all of the you know, banking crisis going on, we've got stuff going on all around, uh, central banks uh, all doing crazy things that no, no central bank had done before, in Europe, in the U.S., all over the world, it was a you know crazy period, and all of a sudden the euro stabilizes, then starts to spike higher during all of this mess. And so it was, you know, again, it was hey, this rising dollar stuff going on, which is the financial chaos that we've become way too familiar with because it keeps happening, that goes along with the dollar going higher. But yet here we have this key currency cross, or what we're told is a key currency cross between the U.S. dollar and the euro, like. Uh, 2015-16, in October, November, and early December of 2008, it surged. The euro went, you know, almost skyrocketed. It was, it was like, um, to some people, it was a signal that, hey, the global financial crisis in 2008 was over. They had finally solved it. They, they, whatever the right combination of magic programs was, they hit upon it somewhere around October 2008. And for a couple of weeks or a couple months, not quite two months, it really seemed if you if you paid attention to the euro against the dollar and and, and made the uh, that big part of your analysis, it seemed like hey maybe they had actually done it. The dollar had switched, the euro was going higher. Maybe this was the end of the crisis. So that's two examples. Now we've got 2015, 2008. The euro is rallying, and in both cases, right, it was rallying not at the end of the disorder. That's the point you make in your article. 
It was rallying with many more months of disorder and upheaval remaining. What about the big one for Europe, 2011 to 2012? Same example? Similar example, yeah. And I think you're right. We need to you know, point out and emphasize that this was a false signal. The euro rallying at these times didn't really tell us much or anything other than the fact that the, the euro was rallying against the dollar. It had very little to say about the global dollar system and the conditions in the global dollar system that had been moving the dollar higher beforehand. And then again, that's we're getting back to the discussion of DXY. DXY isn't really a dollar index. It's a euro index. I mean, it doesn't measure the euro. It measures the euro against the dollar. But when the, when the euro is the main point of emphasis, the largest uh, weighting in the index, therefore it's moved around by the euro, what we're saying is that it can send these false signals from time to time. And another one was 2011, 2012. The euro had been weakening, the dollar rising against it. And then all of a sudden in July of 2012, Mario Draghi made his famous promise that the ECB would do whatever it took to save the euro. Well, as far as U.S. dollar euro currency investors were concerned, they believed them because from that point forward, July of 2012, the euro began to rally yet again. So the dollar lower against the euro, euro up. But from July 2012 until early 2013, the recession in Europe only got worse. And we came close to, to experiencing one in the United States, which is why in September 2012, Ben Bernanke unleashed his third and then December his fourth QE. So again, we have this false signal of the euro rallying against the dollar, which doesn't really tell us much about the dollar. It tells us more about what people are thinking dollar versus euro, which doesn't apply universally to the dollar system. And for our audience who is paying attention closely, some of you may have just slipped off your chair when you heard Jeff say that Ben Bernanke did a third and then a fourth QE. Now a popular culture and the business press only the first three are acknowledged officially, but in previous episodes, we've talked about that just because the Fed doesn't say there's a fourth QE doesn't mean there wasn't one great example last September 2019. But that's, go back and listen to our other shows. So Jeff, we've got tic-tac-toe, 2008, 2011, 2015, the euro rallying despite many more months of disorder what about, can we make it a connect four? This is the fourth euro dollar disorder. Are we seeing that same thing taking place right now? Yeah, the euro has absolutely spiked against the dollar. Going back to the reopening in the middle of May. So what you see is the euro going way up and joined by the Japanese yen, which is a contrary signal. So those two currencies were basically most of the DXY index so the DXY index has been dropping rather steadily. I think it's down to around 93 as we currently speak. So for most people who have been waiting for the dollar crash and, and predicting the dollar crash and forecasting, telling you get ready for the dollar to crash, all of these times, what they're really saying is the euro, the euro, the euro. And that's why as they keep predicting the dollar crash, every time they do predict the dollar crash, the dollar is actually higher than the last time they made their prediction because they're following all of these wrong signals. The euro is not the dollar. The euro is certainly not the euro dollar, which is what we talk about, which is what really moves the dollar. When you look at the dollar outside of DXY and its, its heavy association to the euro and the false signals the euro sends, tends to send at these particular times, the dollar has barely budged from its March 2020 highs, which tells you a very, very different story than, oh, my God, the dollar is crashing. Let me, uh, let me explain it a little bit more detail for some of us that may not be following exactly the difference between the DXY and the dollar, the broad dollar. So the DXY is a dollar index that's most commonly referred to. I think that's because it's used by currency traders, and I think it's because there's, it's actually tradable. Uh, it's maintained by the Intercontinental Exchange, ICE, and it weights only six currencies. So dear audience, when you're listening and you're thinking the dollar is falling, you're thinking it's falling against everyone. Well, no, it's just six currencies. But as Jeff has been saying, you know, the weighting really makes it just the euro. So it's the euro, the yen, the pound, the loonie, Canada, the rix dollar, Sweden, and the Swissy, Switzerland. Uh, but the euro is 58% of the weighting, and the yen another 14%, the pound brings it up to 12%. Another, well, 
doesn't bring it up to, but that's 12% waiting for the pound. Jeff, a moment ago, you said something that might, might be interesting, might be confusing as well. You said that the rising yen signifies a disorder, like a rising dollar. Yeah, it's, it, it's kind of backwards in our convention because the rising dollar is global dollar shortage. Falling dollar is more plentiful dollar resources on the euro dollar markets. But the yen is actually backwards. When the yen goes up against the dollar, therefore the dollar down, that's consistent with shortage because Jap Japanese banks in Tokyo are a primary redistribution point for dollar resources, especially into China and the rest of Asia. So when the yen goes up, that's not the same as the euro going up. In fact, it's actually the opposite. When we see the yen spiking, that always, not always, but in most cases, that associates with some of the worst financial conditions, including March. When the yen surged in March, that was a bad sign. So yen going up along with the euro is kind of a contradictory signal, but except that we realize that the, when the euro goes up at these times, it doesn't really tell us anything. So the yen going up is actually the only thing you really should pay attention to, and it's conflicting with the idea that the dollar is crashing. So the yen up, euro up, one doesn't really matter, the other one does, but it matters in the other direction. So DXY is simply a, a, a total mess at this point, sending you the very false impression that the dollar is crashing when you know, a good part of it is saying, no, we're still stuck in the same mess. And then the other part of it is the euro, which is you know, strike four. <laughs> strike four. I think it's Yahtzee once you get to strike four. Oh, is it? Okay. Okay. Yahtzee. Uh, Jeff, I don't know if you knew this, but on Tuesday on the financial uh, tabloids, in the financial tabloids, was a title that was uh, full of heavy breathing. And uh, Zero Hedge, let it be known that the venerable and August investment bank Goldman Sachs had put out a, uh, a piece where they noted the increase in the euro, the yen, the Swiss, and gold against the dollar, as well as the usual commentary about geopolitical tensions and the Federal Reserve leaning towards an inflationary bias, that that all means, quote, real concerns about the longevity of the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency have started to emerge, end quote. Jeff, have those concerns emerged where you're sitting? How many times have we heard this? I mean, I, I'm pretty much, it, I tune it out nowadays because it's, it's, it's happens all the time. You know, every time the dollar, the DXY index starts a little bit lower, we hear the same thing. Again, as I said before, they keep predicting the dollar is going to crash. And then you look around the dollar index, even DXY is higher than the last time they made the same damn prediction. And eventually you have to say, why aren't they getting this right? What are they missing? And it, it, it gets back to one of our main major thesis around here, which is I don't seem to, it doesn't seem to me as if people understand what a global reserve currency is, what it takes to be a global reserve currency, and therefore how incredibly, almost impossibly difficult it is to just simply replace it. The dollar is not going anywhere, not because it's a good currency or that it's acting the way it should. Quite the contrary, actually, it's, it's a mess and causing all our problems, which again makes my point. If we have this dysfunctional currency system, why haven't we replaced it? One reason is nobody knows what's going on, but the other thing is it's not so easily replaced. It's not something you can just snap your fingers and say, we're gonna start using gold or gold-backed crypto or SDRs or Chinese yuan in a basket with Swiss francs and some Norwegian kroner. I mean, you can't just do those kinds of things. There has to be a very deep, sophisticated, developed infrastructure that trades in these currencies, the banking system, that's why it's a bank-centered system, if that's not in place, if that doesn't exist, then this is all just worthless conjecture. As it's, as it's shown to be time and time again, every time we hear the dollar's crashing, it's going to zero, and yet a couple months later, a couple years later, it ends up being higher, not lower. And so for dear audience, if you wanted to see exactly what we're referring to when we say it's higher, yeah, the DXY, but you can, go, you can go to Google and you can Google Fred and then uh, you look for broadly traded goods and services dollar. And what you'll see is that the U.S. dollar, when it's weighted against all of America's trading partners, uh, it's really never came off the boil. It's, well, it did come off the boil, but it's still higher 
than where we started in February. Jeff, last question for me. You've explained why the DXY is sending conflicting signals. Uh, you've suggested people turn to a broadly weighted dollar to measure. Um, but you end your article saying that you're not a zealot on this. In so many words, you've said this, that if the dollar starts going down, you'll be happy to note that that's what's taking place and that you, you said you would need corroboration from other markets. Can you tell the, uh, the audience which other market were you thinking of and what is that market saying right now? Well, it would be the money curves, the U.S. Treasury curve, uh, global bond markets, gold, all these other, other corroborating, potentially corroborating markets and signals and indications that would say, yes, yeah, something significant has really changed. Something has become positive or if you're Jay Powell inflationary, whatever, um, the, the current background deflationary global dollar shortage squeeze, however you want to call it, euro dollar squeeze, that has finally given up and, and moved on into something else. The banking system has moved on into something else. And we just don't see any signs of that, including, as you just pointed out, Emil, a broader picture of the dollar when it's not so heavily influenced by the euro is has barely budged from March. Yeah, it's down since mid um, since mid May when the the economic reopening happening, but it's not really down that much, and certainly not down in a, in a way that would make you think that it's about to crash or that Jay Powell has printed so much money that he's destroying the dollar as he as he's really trying to as he's intending intending to do. Um, we just don't see that. It's just not there. There's no evidence. And by the way. This higher dollar, this broad trade-weighted look at the dollar, or if you want to look at it as individual currencies, they will show you the same thing. Those are consistent with the bond market, lower yields, lower real yields that are you know, sporting new records in some places that are telling you, nah, there's nothing good here. And nothing good here is typically bad for the banking system, bad for risk-taking, therefore bad for the monetary system, and therefore rising dollar potential. Jeff, this is Eurodollar University, and you're playing the role of uh, Mr. Chips, the professor. I'm the teacher's assistant, but the audience has questions. So, dear audience, if you have questions, go to YouTube, ask them in the comments section. Go to Twitter and ask them on Twitter. I'll do my best to respond. If I don't respond, that hasn't meant I, that hasn't meant I haven't read it. In fact, I have read it, and it'll help steer the show. You can reach Jeff at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP, and me at Emil Kalinowski. Jeff, let's move on to our second article. On July 28th, you wrote a pair of articles at Alhambra Investments, and they had a baseball theme. The first one is called Strike One Gold, Strike Two Dollar, Strike Three Inflation Expectations. And that's the one we're gonna focus on. For our audience, the second article will be linked in the description below the video or in the podcast notes. Jeff, why did you write this particular article? Same kind of theme, the idea, um, the myths that, that continue to pervade the mainstream commentary that the, the world is flooded with liquidity. In fact, we're in danger of too much liquidity, too many dollars. Jay Powell, the federal government, they've done way too much and therefore that's one of the reasons why people are expecting the dollar to crash and that's why we keep hearing about yield caps and the treasury market's going to crash. And there's just no evidence for it. There's, there's really no market evidence that are saying this is happening. The inflationary um, over-aggressive monetary policy has finally become over-aggressive enough that it's overcome all of the deflationary gravity such that we should expect uncontrolled inflation, dollar going to zero, treasuries going to be uh, becoming worthless, all of these bad things that keep predicting um alongside each, you know, in combination with each other. And when you look across the markets, these, these very same markets, what you see is none of that is happening. None of it, not a single thing of it. The first strike was obviously gold. And we talked about that last week where the gold, rising gold is not an inflationary signal. It's, an, it's a signal, in fact, that the Fed isn't overdoing it. They're in fact in danger of failing at doing nothing because bank reserves are not money. So gold is strike one because gold corresponds to the bond market. Strike two, we just talked about with the Jeff, dollar. Can I, sure. Forgive me for interrupting. People that haven't watched our show, they may not know that gold has been rising for a while. So can you just talk a little bit more about strike one and how long it's been rising? It's not since 
just March 2020. Yeah, that's the impression you get from reading the media or just, you know, commentary of people are, or inflationary uh, gold, people are talking about the inflationary gold story. It sounds like it, gold started to rise when the Fed started to do all its massive QE and all these alphabet uh, soup letters of uh, these, these bailout programs and market support and all this reckless money printing that's been going on. That's simply not true. Gold began its, its latest rise all the way back in October of 2018. So we're, we're closing in on a year and a half. And as we talked, what we talked about extensively last week was how that gold rise corresponds and correlates almost perfectly with the bond market's movements, which is deflationary, not inflationary. So gold and the bond market are actually in sync, which makes sense because one of the f- driving factors behind gold's price is opportunity cost of holding similar instruments. So if bond yields are going to be lower, there's less of an opportunity cost to hold gold. And if bond yields are perceived to be lower for a very, very long time, which is not a good thing, that's not stimulus, that's a bad thing, then gold can go even higher as it has. And so gold has moved in in tandem with bonds, suggesting not the inflationary outcome since mid-March that you've been hearing about constantly, but rather the deflationary prospects that have been actively traded in the marketplace going back to 2018. So gold is strike one. The higher gold goes, that means lower interest rates for a longer period of time. Jay Powell, you're not doing your job. Not not that you're in danger of doing too much. So Jay Powell, I guess I should have asked you that at the beginning. Jeff, let's let's go back a little bit. You're using a baseball analogy. I think you just answered my question, but who is the pitcher and who is the batter? The pitcher, I guess, it's, it's a clumsy analogy, so you have to forgive that. But the batter is obviously Powell, who's taking swings with monetary policy, QE, interest rates, whatever the Fed does. And it doesn't really matter because everything the Fed does is basically the same thing. It's just an attempt to play upon your expectations. So uh, Jay's the batter. The, the pitcher is, I guess, the markets or the economy, however you want to put it. The catcher is the other one, you know, the bond market. It, it, how, it, whatever it is, it's Jay Powell wildly sling, swinging his bat, and he can never seem to come up, uh, connect with any of the pitches. All right. So the first pitch was a uh, off-speed knuckleball, strike one. Number two is a gyro ball. It's a, it's a second strike here. And the gyro ball was invented in Japan. Jeff, we just talked about it a little bit. What is strike two? The dollar, which is, you know, against, if you look uh, outside of DXY and it's over-reliance and a heavy, heavy, heavy influence of the euro, the dollar really hasn't moved, which is curious because, if Jay Powell's been printing money and, and stoking all of these inflation, inflation expectations are building up underneath, there really wouldn't be anything to keep the dollar as high as it is. So in broad terms, the dollar is saying, again, more crisis. I mean, it's not even close to where it was in February. So more crisis, no inflation, strike two. Another fastball pitch. It's a four-seam heater. It just broke the 100-mile-an-hour barrier. Strike three, what was it? Inflation expectations, the most direct measurement of what Jay Powell is intending to accomplish. The whole point behind QE, or at least the major point behind QE, is to influence behavior. I mean, if the Fed was really printing money, you wouldn't see it come out in the CPI like immediately. There would be lags in the economy. But we would expect if the, if, if the markets were expecting Jay Powell to be successful, they would begin trading on those future inflation expectations right away, today. Inflation expectations would begin to move in anticipation of what they keep telling you on TV, what they keep telling you in the financial media, which is there's an, you know, this, this uncontrolled money printing, this reckless monetary policy is going to unleash the inflation genie that's been in the bottle for almost 30 years. But when you look at inflation expectations, especially the tips market, that's not what you see. Inflation expectations have risen from these really low points back in March during the crisis, but that's mostly because oil prices have rebounded. And remember, tips pay you based on the CPI, and the CPI is most heavily influenced by oil price. So as the oil prices move back up only to $40, even though with the curve in Contango, that's still some positive momentum in the CPI that gets you paid in tips. The government will re- reimburse you for the however much WTI gets into the CPI. But that's still, even with that in the tips trading, 
uh, inflation break-evens, which are a measure of expectations of inflation in the market, extremely low. They're close, again, they're more, especially the longer term, the five-year, five-year forward rate, for example, is, is it's rarely been this low in its entire history. So we're talking about 20 years of trading. How can that be? If we're, if we're in this uncontrolled inflationary environment, why aren't longer term and intermediate term bond market inflation expectations reflecting that? In fact, they're not reflecting. They're, again, like gold, like bonds, and I'm talking about nominal treasuries or euro dollar curve, whatever you want to look at, like these other money curves, these low inflation expectations are telling you that there is no successful monetary policy, let alone an ag overly aggressive monetary policy risking an uncontrolled inflationary outbreak. It's just not there. Jeff, whenever I hear the term uh, real yield, I always translate that in my mind as uh, representing the real return on investment in the real economy and goods and services. Uh, is that correct? And if so, that does that means there's really terrible, at least for the five and ten year, right? Uh, the five and ten year treasury bonds for kind of a longer, medium to long term. I always think of it as the return on the real economy. And is that what you're saying? We're indicating that there's no return. There's no economic activity in, in the United States. Yeah, that's usually what the term real and economic circumstance refers to is, okay, we, we adjust our nominal equation by inflation, uh, some whatever the measure of inflation is, and what's left behind is quote-unquote real growth. In the tips market, you're actually getting the tips yield plus inflation compensation. And those are based upon the top line, which is the nominal treasury yield. So for a nominal 10-year treasury that's now paying you, what, 55 basis points, the government's going to reimburse you for CPI inflation if you're holding a 10-year tips. That's the, that's the reflation break-even. And what's left over as a remainder is the quote-unquote real yield, which is what you see quoted in the paper or in the Wall Street Journal or wherever. And the real yield, is, real yield as, you, as you just said, Emil, is a reflection of real economic growth expectations, which is interesting because nominal rates remain stubbornly low. And as oil prices have rebounded somewhat and moved inflation break-evens up a little bit, that has pushed real growth expectations down in the longer-term areas, like the 10-year, to record low levels, which doesn't, doesn't quite sound like the inflationary success story that we're hearing about in the media with Jay Powell and his flood of money. Quite the opposite, actually. When you think about the 10-year record low tips real yield, what that suggests is quite a bit of longer-run economic malaise, to put it charitably and put it mildly, if not something worse in between. And for the audience, if you just heard that Jeff was saying that there's this link between CPI, consumer, the consumer price index, and oil, I, I recommend that you check out one of his articles or whenever the next CPI number is released. Jeff very often shows the amazing uh, relationship between oil and CPI. They just overlay each other. So that's check that out if you'd like to learn more. Uh, Jeff, I'm going to quote... Hey, one point of clarification. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what we do here. It's actually not oil that, that moves the CPI. Oil then... Because uh, there's no oil in the CPI basket, just to be clear. Oil um, um, influences the price of gasoline. And that's a pretty direct... And it's gasoline prices which in, and motor fuel which influences CPIs. Just so, so people don't, don't think that we've got this wrong, it's oil through gasoline, therefore the CPI. So we're just kind of making a, a shortcut here. Thank you. And that's why I went to Arizona State University. Shortcuts. Thank you, Jeff, very much for clarifying that for me and everyone else. Uh, I'm going to quote you to segue to my penultimate question here on this article. Quote, if another wave of economic or financial trouble grows too obvious to ignore, that's when we'll see U.S. Treasury demand overwhelming again, which should, in my view, push maybe most of the yield curve into negative territory. We're a hair trigger away from negative nominals, not runaway inflation. Jeff, there's this it-can't-happen-here belief uh, regarding negative nominal yielding treasuries. Is there anything that you see in the plumbing, any technical reason why it can't happen here? Why it can't happen? No, That's it right. absolutely can happen. Um, you know, they said back in 2008 that we would never see a negative treasury bill. And then it happened in a very, very short run occasion. And then in March, it happened in 
very noticeable occasions, especially those that correlated with the stock market's worst days or worst days in decades. So the fact that we can't see negative yield, I mean, we can see them because that's, there's really nothing that prevents us from happening. Uh, and so what I was saying is that, look, bond yields have been creeping lower, lower, lower ever since June 5th and June 8th, really June 5th, which was the, the May payroll report, incidentally. Um, the, the bond curve has been flattening lower, not steepening higher. So flattening lower means deflationary negative risk steepening higher would have been consistent with this inflation story or whatever, you know, the mainstream story about over aggressive monetary policy. So the bond market is creeping lower. What's preventing it from crashing lower is simply, you know, we're in this interim period where we're not really sure are things as bad as they seem. Maybe there's possibility things could go well. You know, there are definitely speculators in the treasury markets who are selling their treasuries based upon, you know, Jay Powell's story, the mainstream idea that the markets are going to go crashing in this inflationary inferno. And then there's banks who are greedily buying up every one of those treasuries being sold saying, thank you very much for that. And it's kind of led to this, uh, not quite balanced, but almost an, a, a loose equilibrium where the curve has come down a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. It's inching closer and closer to the downward direction. And really all it's going to take is a hair trigger that says, yeah, we're, this, this recovery is not going the way we want. There's, there's a liquidity event. Forget the euro. There's, there's another dollar liquidity event developing. And that's when you'll see, I think, the, the treasury yields crash in the way that they did or similar to the way that they did back in, in February or March. Except this time, since they're doing it, they would be doing it from a very low nominal level. I, I don't think it would, there was any barrier for them to go negative as they have in Germany and Japan and other places around the world. Jeff, final question. We know that you would rather read uh, original works on political economy, contemporary works on political economy, uh, than Madame Bovary or any other kind of fiction. But what about sports? You said strike one, strike two, strike three for your article. Are you a baseball fan? I used to be a pretty big baseball fan. And for a while there, I was sharing office space with a Hall of Fame baseball player. So our offices were decorated with all sorts of baseball memorabilia. So I've, I've been a baseball fan at times, more of a football fan like yourself, but unfortunately I follow the Buffalo Bills, which is, um, that's another story. <laughs> well, that, that should be a whole episode. I don't even know why we're friends because I like rooting for the Patriots. So, Yeah, that's, that's a big problem for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, hopefully the season takes place this year as uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to my fantasy football team coming in second again, as it always does. Uh, let us turn to our last article. OMG, the dollar, three exclamation points. On July 29th, you published it at the Alhambra Investments blog. Any, any reason that, uh, what, any motivation, any one item that kind of jumped into your mind and said, I got to write this? Yeah, it's to take the DXY thesis a step further. Because if, if DXY, that, our earlier examination was about the euro, Let's take a look at some of the other currencies out there that we could potentially explain or tell us something about where the dollar might be outside of the euro. So let's look at, for example, the Brazilian real or the Indian rupee or something else along those lines that can give us an indication of, you know, would the real dollar stand up was what I titled the other article, not this one. But that's what, you know, we're looking at. What is the, what is the real dollar here? Is, is it the XY and the euro or are there other cases that we can look at and say, this is the this is what's really going on in the dollar world, Jeff. Let me ask you a, maybe a tangential question here. But uh, we often hear, I guess they change their minds. These official uh, officials and monetary technocrats that they want to lower the value of the dollar, and this is supposedly good for the United States. Uh, Jeff, what do you think? Is it good, broadly speaking, for the America to have the weak dollar? Well, it does correspond to periods of better economic growth, but that I don't think is the same thing at all. And look, the textbook says, the, all, all every economic textbook says, currency devaluation debasement is a positive stimulus because of the export. It makes your exports cheaper to other people around the world to buy them. And that's the theory is that, okay, if I, if I weaken my own currency, that'll help me because that'll make my exports 
more uh, competitive. Therefore, people will buy more of them, and that will get our economy going again, my local economy. But it's doing it at the expense of our neighbors, which is why you always hear the term currency war used alongside it. It's, it's a beggar thy neighbor policy. It's, I'm not getting better. The whole world is not getting better. The whole global economy is not getting better. I'm using you for myself to get better. And what the economics textbook also says when the dollar is a reserve currency is that the U.S. economy, or at least U.S. officials in the mainstream uh, economic theory, okay, yes, it's beggar thy neighbor, but it's, def it's eventually good for us and the neighbor. Because if the U.S. economy gets going by you know, repricing its exports to become more competitive, and that gets the U.S. economy back on its, a, a solid footing, that will eventually allow the rest of the global economy to join it. So the theory from the U.S. perspective is, yes, we are conducting a currency war, but don't worry about it. Eventually, everyone will benefit from it. We'll get the benefits first, but everyone will benefit from it. Jeff, who is Guido Montego, and is he pursuing a man with six fingers who killed his father? No, I don't think it was Inigo Montoya, but as so much as Guido Montego was the Brazilian finance minister who on September 27th, 2010, made headlines all across the world because he accused Ben Bernanke of, start, of, of igniting a currency war. A, this was it. After the Great Recession, we had the downturn, then we had, uh, you know, the recovery from it was not going along as planned. They had all sorts of financial irregularities during the middle of 2010, where Ben Bernanke had come out in August of 2010 at Jackson Hole and basically said, yeah, we're going to do QE again, which then, of course, Guido and some of the other nations around the world began to say, wait a minute here. This sounds way too much like the 1930s. This sounds like way too much like intentional debasement. This is currency wars. So he was the first one to mention in any official capacity the idea that the Fed, through quantitative easing, through the idea of, you know, quote-unquote money printing, they were going to devalue the dollar at everyone else's expense. And where is the Brazilian real trading at today? Because the Federal Reserve has been printing like crazy, therefore devaluing the dollar like crazy. So the real should be much stronger than where it was in 2010. Am I right? Well, yeah. When the, it's interesting that there was all this currency war talk. All I mean, it was taken as, you know, this was guaranteed. I mean, it wasn't just something that, you know, Brazilian finance minister was talking about. You had this group, I think it was called the E21, this group of famous economists in the U.S. who wrote that letter saying, Ben, knock it off. You're going you're gonna to destroy the dollar if you do this. And that was in, I believe, November 2010-2, shortly after QE2 was launched. But the interesting thing is when you go ahead a couple of years to September 2012 with QE3, there was no talk about currency wars. In between, where the dollar was supposed to be driven into the dirt, instead it had started to go higher again. And so there's a disconnect between economic theory, which says money printing, lower dollar export stimulus, good for everyone eventually, to Euro dollar number two, another global dollar shortage, dollar going higher again in between. So something's missing here from the mainstream, not just the mainstream discussion, but also official discussions. When you go back and look at some of the FOMC transcripts, as I have, um, what you find is back in November 2010, when, they were, when the FOMC was actually voting to launch QE2, they were sensitive to the fact that they had been accused of igniting a currency war. Because it had, been, it had been in the papers, it had been in the financial media. I believe Ben Bernanke was even asked questions about it directly. So they were sensitive to it, but they also intended to do it. So they were not just you know, sensitive to being accused of being currency wars warriors. They fully expected to be currency wars. In fact, I believe some of the discussion was about how most of the benefit from these, these large-scale asset purchases like QE would flow from a weaker dollar. They were expecting to lower the dollar, and then the benefit of that lower dollar would be the net, net result, the net positive result from quantitative easing. They were expecting to use a lower dollar, to be able to move the dollar lower, and to use that to justify quantitative easing, even though they were being accused of being currency warriors. And they, the real sad thing is they don't know what makes the dollar move. Looking at Google Trends for uh, currency wars, and if you look up that topic, the peak was in October and November 2010. Then there was again 
a, a level of interest that rose to about half that level in February of 2013, and then a quarter of the peak in August of 2015, which is, of course, an infamous month. And then uh, August 2019 came back to 20% of the interest of the 2010 peak. So it's only been decreasing since then, but it kept spiking during these critical moments. I have a quick question for you. Yeah, yeah go ahead if you have anything. That, you know, the dollar is that's because the dollar keeps going higher rather than lower. We keep hearing, you know, and again, I, I want to read a quote that uh, one Fed governor said during that November 2010 meeting. And I think mm -hmm. encapsulates this very discussion, this dissonance between what we're supposed to believe in terms of what the textbooks say and what actually happens in the real world. This was from Kevin Warsh, who was one of the Fed governors. He said, November 2010, voting in affirmative for QE. I think it is risky pool playing in the foreign exchange markets, asking them to do so much of our work when the world's recovery is resting on this. So what he's saying is we're going to weaken the dollar. We know we're going to weaken the dollar, but we have to do it because the entire global recovery depends upon us being able to weaken the dollar. And what, has, what we've shown over the last decade is these people have no idea what they're doing. Number one, they don't know how the dollar actually works. Their quantitative easing doesn't push it lower because obviously the dollar has been nothing but higher, higher, higher ever since. And every time we hear about these currency wars, as you just pointed out, Google Trends is a good way to, you know, when the public's thinking about currency wars because they're hearing about it in the financial media, every time we hear currency wars, it never lasts because then the dollar goes higher again. And they don't seem to understand, which they should understand, why does the dollar go higher? Why doesn't it go higher? There really is no official recognition of how things actually work. And that's kind of a big problem. That's the reason why, that's the reason, the whole reason for Eurodollar University. And the reason you and I are sitting here talking about it is because these people don't get how this system works. And what I hear a lot of times is, well, no, that can't possibly be because these are very smart people. We've been told from the very beginning, they're very powerful, they're very wise, they can do whatever they want. And so if, if, if the dollar keeps going up, then it must be because they want it to go up or they're trying to do something. There's a plan in place here that these people can't possibly be this level of incompetent. And trust me, take it from me. Again, I have all sorts of quotes from transcripts. I've read all of these transcripts. I know how these people think. They really just have no idea how the system actually works. And they're attempting to navigate this system using outdated material. And that's really all this is. They're using textbooks that were written in the 1930s to navigate a system that hasn't been the same since the 1950s. And that really, when you look at it that way, then you start to understand why things are. It doesn't explain why they don't change. I mean, there's ideological rigidity and institutional inertia and political questions behind everything. But it's, at its essence, that's what we're talking about. They're using outdated ideology that doesn't work in the real world, as we keep seeing. Currency war was supposed to be the result in 2010. It was the intended result in 2010. Instead, the dollar is higher because they don't understand the factors behind the euro dollar system, the euro dollar shortage, euro dollar squeeze. Jeff, we started the article talking about Brazil. Brazil is one of the emerging markets rush more. India, Russia, China are the other three. Can you tell us a little bit about their currencies and where they're trading at? Is it similar to the Brazilian story? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's similar to the broader dollar trade weighted index, which shows that since March, yes, the real, the rupee, all of these emerging market currencies were absolutely pummeled as, as, as the euro and everybody else was. But ever since the, the, the worst of the first part of the crisis back in March, They've come back a little bit, which means the, the Brazilian real has rebounded a little bit higher, the dollar weaker against it, but not really all that much. And certainly not in a way that we would say that would be consistent with Jay Powell's claim in 60 Minutes that he's flooded the world with liquidity, flooded the world with dollar liquidity. Quite the opposite, because the Brazilians have been actually selling their U.S. treasuries, their, 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 their reserves. They've been mobilizing their, their local swap markets. They've been instituting these coupon cambio swaps to try to influence the currency, which indicates that no, the dollar system is not flooded with liquidity. It's not even actually normal. And the central bank is doing its level best just to tread water in the real close to its record low point. 
again, it's completely contradictory to the idea that the dollar is crashing because things are going in the opposite inflationary, plentiful money direction. We're still seeing the vestiges of this continued dollar shortage. It's not as bad as it was in March, obviously, but it's still not good. It's still pretty bad. Jeff, the whole, uh, the whole episode today is really focusing on the dollar, and, we ex- and the focus that you hear in the financial press is on the DXY, and we've explained. That's really heavily weighted towards Japan and Europe. We've explained Japan is a global redistribution point. It's a world money center, and so it acts much like the dollar does when there are these disorders in the economy and finance and people run to it for liquidity, for safety. I have a question, though. Why then doesn't the euro act that way? It's the second most popular currency in the world. Why isn't the euro behaving like the yen and the dollar during these squeezes? Because in some ways, the euro acts as the dollar. It's, it's not essentially a completely separate system. Because the banks that used to you know, uh, that operate in the euro-dollar system as a whole are, are still heavily weighted toward Europe. So what drives the euro versus the dollar isn't necessarily these global dollar liquidity stuff. It's the dollar and the euro block together, and then there's differences within that block. So that's what you see the move of the euro at these particular times is there's a perception about Europe becoming better than the U.S., and that that moves the euro against the dollar, but it's irrelevant to the wider euro dollar system because it's just banks trading from one pocket to the other. That's the best explanation I can come up with is that it's simply the same system, but the different pockets within the system. I, I'm admittedly confused, but let's come back to it again in the future. Uh, Jeff, appreciate it. Loved it. Uh, for our audience, please uh, subscribe to the YouTube channels. Subscribe to the uh, podcasts. And uh, we hope to educate you more, teach you more about this shadowy Euro-dollar system and how it's affecting your finances, your economy, politics, and society. Talk to you again next week, Jeff. Take care, Emil.